Welcome to Learning Bible Truth. Thank God for another season. I am your host and teacher, Dr. Kamala D. Here to take you on a tour of the Bible by reading entire books in the Bible. Not just one scripture, full chapters. And of course, I share my commentary while we read line upon line and precept upon precept of every word of scripture. Since you won't take the time to study and show yourself approved before God, I am bringing the scriptures to you. So get your Bibles, take out pen and paper, invite family and friends, take notes, and let's grow in faith while we learn how to walk in God's amazing grace. Not my will, Lord, but God's will be done by giving our lives to his son, Jesus the Christ. to Learning Bible Truth, everyone. I am your host and teacher, Dr. Kamala D. Yes, this is part two of a 36-week series entitled, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but the scriptures lead you to Jesus. All right, I hope you were blessed by episode one. Um, from what I can tell, the stats, over 3,200 of you listened to that episode and are still listening to it. I am sure episode two will bless you as well. Now, we get our foundational scripture from John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. Yes, I have included verse 40 because it is so important. I'm going to read our foundational scripture to you from the New King James Version but I am still teaching from the NIV, the New International Version. Uh, John chapter 5, verse 39, and I am reading. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Now, I added verse 40 because we have so many people following all these different religions and denominations, and not all of these religions or denominations are teaching you truth. You cannot be saved without Christ. You need his blood. You need his suffering that he suffered on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. Hallelujah. Praise God. Now, before we get started, because I don't want to prolong too much, uh, let's say a prayer. Heavenly Father, you are the only true and living God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who heals, the God who provides, the God who delivers. I thank you, Lord, for this day. I thank you for the opportunity. I thank you for this platform of learning Bible truth. God, I pray that you open the, the minds of those who are listening today so that they can understand, open their ears so that they can hear and open their hearts so that they can receive your truth. I thank you, Lord, that you have leveled the ground to where any man can be saved through your son, Jesus the Christ. Amen.
And again, I say amen, saints. So in the first episode, we covered um, a couple of things. We covered that, you know, the, the second Adam versus the first Adam. Yes, we did. We covered the seed of the woman. And we also covered Jesus being the light of the world. And in the midst of that, we talked about no man has an excuse not to believe that God exists. Because you can see his creation. You know, man did not create the world. Man did not create the sky. He didn't create water. He didn't create dirt. He did not create clouds. So you don't have no excuse not to believe in God. And for those of you who, who claim to believe in God, but you putting Jesus on the back burner, you can't get to the God who created the heavens and the earth unless you go through his son. There is no exception. Everything else outside of that that you are hearing is false. Okay? It's false. And for those of you who are listening to me for the first time, I am very blunt when it comes to preaching and teaching the truth. Because it is the truth or knowing the truth that sets man free. So we are going to get started. Uh, let's see. We are going to remain in Genesis for now. You have to remember Genesis is the beginning. It is the beginning. And the book of Revelation is the ending. Jesus is Alpha and Omega, meaning the beginning and the end. So the reason why we will be covering a lot of scripture in Genesis is because Genesis talks about the Savior. Genesis tells you who Jesus is. So it's a teacher's responsibility to dissect these scriptures and to rightly divide the scriptures and tell you what these scriptures mean. And that is what we are doing. We are searching the scriptures so that I can explain to you where in scripture it talks about Jesus. Okay, so Genesis chapter 3. And remember, I am using the NIV. I'm continuing to use that for now. I may switch. Now, if there's a scripture, because I while I was studying, I did think about reading... Um, a couple of verses from the New King James, but we haven't gotten there yet. If I choose to do it, I'll switch and I'll let you know. If not, I'll continue in the NIV because I think I can explain it enough to where you will understand it anyway. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, and I am reading, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, although Adam and Eve did not die physically when they were deceived and ate of the fruit that God had forbidden them to eat, their relationship with God was severed. Instead of the joy of walking with God in the garden, you know, they suddenly found themselves separated from God. They were actually in conflict. They had belittled God's love. They scorned his truth. They shunned his majesty and rejected his authority. Now, ashamed of their nakedness, they attempted to cover themselves with a, a patchwork of fig leaves. That's in verse seven of verse three of chapter three. Now, this was the work of their own hands. So it is with all of us who would hide our nakedness from our God. We try to use the work of our own hands. We seek to be hidden from God in religion, 
and in religious ceremonies, you know, charity functions, you know, helping the poor, nursing the sick or, or any one of a thousand good works. These things can be very worthy. Mm -hmm. The problem is when we think of any good work as being satisfying in any way, shape or form, God's demand upon us. Now, what I'm getting ready to say might shock you. God's demands can only be satisfied by Jesus. Ah, uh, hallelujah. I need to say that again. God's demands can only be satisfied by Jesus. That work is finished. Now, so we see in verse 21 that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Animals had to die. Yes, God sacrificed other innocent creatures so that Adam and Eve might be clothed. We see in this verse the first foreshadowing of the principle of substitutionary atonement, meaning covering of sins. Now, it is a principle that will be continued throughout the Old Testament and have its ultimate fulfillment in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary. Okay, Christ had to die as a covering for sin so that his church might be clothed in his righteousness, not ours, his righteousness. That's why I made that statement a few seconds ago that God's demands can only be fulfilled by Christ. The righteousness of Christ is what saves us, okay? Now, for our righteousness, it is described in Isaiah, talking about our righteousness, why God will not accept you and my righteousness, okay? Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. And it says this, All of us have, be have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. That is why God will not ever accept any good works that we do. Now, don't get me wrong. Now, any good works that we do to save us, we can't save ourselves. Only Jesus can. The good works and the righteous works that Jesus did is the only works that God will accept, which is why those who are in Christ are saved. Okay, there's no, now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ because we are making it to heaven on the righteousness of Christ. Now, don't get me wrong, we ought to maintain good works, but not for salvation. We will never be saved based on our good works. And you need to understand Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. I will read it again. All of us, this is the prophet Isaiah talking, all of us become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. This is why we need Jesus. He is our covering. Now, in the book of Leviticus, God laid out the full principle of substitutionary atonement. But even in Genesis, we see animals being sacrificed for sin. Now, as early as Genesis chapter 4, verse 4, we find Abel bringing an offering to God from his flock. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, we see, we see Noah offers a burnt offering of animals and birds to the Lord following the flood. Abraham does the same, as do Isaac and Jacob. In Leviticus chapter 9, verse 7, we find these words. Moses said to Aaron, his brother. Now, we all know the famous Moses. Moses was one of the most famous prophets 
of all outside of Jesus. His brother Aaron was the first high priest. We have the uh, Aaronic um, priesthood. And out of Aaron came the Levitical priesthood. Okay. Let me continue to read. Let me start over. Moses said to Aaron, come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and the people. Sacrifice the offering that is for the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. Now, the principle of substitutionary atonement is presented throughout the book of Leviticus and indeed the entire Old Testament. But as the writer to the Hebrews, and we don't know who wrote Hebrews, some say Paul, we don't know. It could have been, but if you notice in all Paul's writings, his letters and epistles, he identified himself. So unless the page was lost, we don't know that it was Paul. So Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verse 11 through 14, I will be reading. It says this, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Let me say that again, which can never take away sins. We are talking about the blood of animals can never take away sins. But when this priest talking about Jesus had offered for all time, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You guys often hear me say Jesus is alive and seated at the right hand of God. That's because it's in scripture. Okay. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Those who are in Christ are being made holy. And if you notice also that he sat down at the right hand of God, since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. His enemies have not been made his footstool yet because Satan is still running loose, wreaking havoc on this planet. Okay. Now, all that bloody animal sacrifices can do is to remind the Hebrews of the seriousness of their sin and to point them to the coming Messiah, Christ, whose sacrifice alone can truly take away their sins. Now, if you guys uh, remember, I did a whole teaching on the entire book of Hebrews. Um, the writer is telling them those who had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, had accepted him as Lord and Savior, believed he was the son of God. They left Judaism and, and, and was going back to Judaism and offering animal sacrifices to God. And the writer to the Hebrews is, is saying, wait a minute, stop, stop. You cannot offer animal sacrifice because Jesus offered his blood once and for all. And his blood is perfect. His sacrifice was made perfect. And it is forever. Those who are being made holy. Okay. So this is why God no longer accepts animal sacrifices because Jesus was our final substitutionary atonement, meaning not just a sin covering. He removed our sins. Okay. Now let me continue. Um, so we see here in the earliest um, part of the Bible, which is in Genesis, a foreshadowing of Christ's substitutionary atonement for the sins of his people. Now, in the tabernacle in the wilderness, which we will study later in this series, the slaughter and sacrifice of animals was wholesale. Day after day, sheep, goats, steers, 
and other animals are drained of their blood and placed on the fire of the altar. Now they all prefigured the one who is to make one final sacrifice for sin. And that one is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the animals that God sacrificed to clothe Adam and Eve, it actually prefigured the Lord Jesus Christ, the final covering. Yes, yes. Go to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 23 and 24. Okay, and you guys know so that I won't delay, I can read. You have the option to pause the tape and then you can um, press play and catch up. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, cherubim is an angelic being with wings. Some say a lion and some say, a, you know, uh, another creature. But God used that cherubim to guide the tree of life. Okay. Now, the term tree of life is found in three books of the Bible. Genesis chapter three, verse nine. You can write down these scriptures so that you can um, find the words tree of life. Uh, Genesis chapter three, verse 22 and chapter three, verse 24. It's also in the book of Proverbs, uh, chapter three, verse 18, chapter 11, verse 30, chapter 13, verse 12 and chapter 15, verse four. And finally, it's in the book of Revelation, chapter two, verse seven, chapter 22, verse two, chapter 22, verse 14, and chapter 22, verse 19. In Genesis and Revelation, the first and the last books of the Bible, the term refers to an actual tree from which fruit comes, that if eaten, it brings eternal life. However, in Proverbs, right in the center of the Bible, other concepts such as wisdom, the fruit of the righteous, a longing fulfilled and a tongue that brings healing becomes trees of life. All these things refer to Jesus. Okay. All of these things in Genesis, in Proverbs and in Revelation. Now on the cross, another tree in scripture, our Lord Jesus became a curse for us. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 21 and I'm going to read verse 23. It says this. You must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Now, the apostle Paul, uh, he pulls from um, Deuteronomy in Galatians when he is talking to uh, our saints and brothers and sisters in Galatia. Uh, it's chapter three, verse 13. Paul says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who, who hung on a tree. Paul was referencing Deuteronomy. Okay. Now going back to Genesis, we remember that another tree was planted in the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we're going to make some comparisons and, and contrast. These two trees, the first of which Adam and Eve ate and were cursed, and the second on which our Lord bore their curse for us. Now, by way of contrast, I can note that the first tree in Eden was planted by God. 
The second in Calvary is planted by man. The first is pleasant to look upon while the second is hideous and repugnant to, to our eyes. Now, God forbids man to eat of the tree in Eden while Satan uses all of his cunning to get man to eat of it. In contrast, God calls all people to eat of the tree of Calvary while Satan uses all of his power to keep people from eating from that tree. OK, that tree is Jesus. Now, eating from the first tree brings sin and death, but the second tree brings life and salvation. Adam steals the fruit of the first tree, bringing condemnation, while the repentant thief at Calvary eats of the fruit of the second and enters paradise. Now, you have to remember when Jesus was put on the cross, he was put in the middle or in between two thieves. He had one on each side. Now, God revealed to one of those thieves who Jesus was. And he was saved on the cross next to Jesus because he recognized who Jesus was. And Jesus told him while he was on that cross hanging that he was going to be with him in paradise. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, so let's compare the two trees further. Both trees are planted in a garden. Now, John chapter 1941 testifies that at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. Now, both the first Adam and the last Adam die in a garden. Now, Adam, the first Adam, dies spiritually in a state that brings ultimate physical death. While Jesus dies physically, bringing ultimate spiritual life to all who put their trust in him. But trees are in the mist. We have to remember in Genesis, we're talking about trees. Trees are, are in the mist now. And we, we are... Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, both trees are in the mist. The first is the mist of the Garden of Eden. The second sees Jesus crucified in the midst of sinners. Now, both trees are trees of the knowledge of good and evil. The first displays the, the vileness of sin, while the second shows the love and goodness of God as nowhere else in history. Okay. Now, finally, Let's compare the fruit of the first forbidden tree with that of the second, the true tree of life. Okay. Um, we're going to read Genesis chapter three, verse six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, Adam and Eve definitely were deceived. The fruit of the first tree may have been pleasing to the eye, but not good for food, nor does it bring wisdom, only separation and death. By contrast, the fruit of Calvary's tree, Jesus, is good for food as we grow in Christ by eating it and studying the word of God. Now, it is pleasing to the eye as our eyes are truly open to the way of, of eternal life, and it is fruit that brings ultimate power and wisdom. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 24, if you want to read that. Now, the tree of life described in Revelation will be ours to eat for eternity. And it says this, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go into the city. Jesus is our tree of life. Okay. He is definitely our tree of life. 
Now let's compare in Genesis to um, Jesus being our refuge. Okay. And our deliverer. Um, go to Genesis chapter 6. Chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 5 through 8 and then verse 13 and 14. Okay. Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 6 beginning at verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So this dispels anyone who says that everyone has some good in them. That's a lie. The only time you will have a piece of good in you is when you accept Christ. But until then, everyone has evil in them. Everyone. Here it is in scripture in case you didn't know it. Now, it's somebody who I know dearly love, love them, made a comment to me that everyone has good in them, some good in them. That's not true. Here we go. Let me read it again. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time, all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and, cre and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air. For I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I didn't say Noah was so good, just big old, you know, gracious and, and, and great guy. It says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So God said to Noah, and I'm reading verses 13 and 14 now. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. Because of who? People. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in, in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. Now, how many arks do we find in God's word? I know some of you never thought of this before, but the answer is three. First, we have Noah's ark carrying him and his family through the flood. The second usually mentioned is the Ark of the Covenant and its mercy seat carried by the Hebrews in the wilderness. Now, the Ark of the Covenant of God is the Ark. It was this golden um, thing. It looked to me like a casket that contained the laws of Moses because that was the basis of the covenant of God for the children of Israel, not us, the children of Israel. Now, the third and often missed is the ark of Moses that floats him to safety in the, in the bulrushes. That's in Exodus chapter two, verse three. Now, what do all these arks have in common? Hmm? What do all three of these arks have in common? They are all places of refuge for God's people. Now, truly the God man, Jesus is our refuge, our heavenly ark. As the psalmist sings in Chapter 46, verses 1 through 3, King David said, said these words, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way, these are, oh my God, this is one of my favorite scriptures. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, 
though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their, their surging. My Lord. King David was talking about Jesus. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Now let us compare the ark of Noah with our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, we're talking about Jesus being our refuge. Our, our, our safety net, if you will. First, plans for the ark are provided by God well in advance so that Noah and his family and the animals in it will be saved. Now, in the same way Jesus' arrival on the earth is planned many years in advance, as the prophet Micah says in chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now, second, Noah doesn't come up with the idea of, of a coming universal flood and the need of a big boat to escape it. Mm -mm, that was not Noah's idea. Both are revealed to him by God. In the same way, our need for a savior is not our own idea because people still think they can save themselves by their good works. Mm. But it is shown to us by the special revelation of God in the Bible. Yes. Third, the ark is to be made of gopher wood from trees that have been cut down. This speaks to our Lord's humanity who grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. That's in Isaiah chapter 53, verse two. Now, Daniel, the prophet Daniel chapter nine, verse 26 also speaks of the anointed one who will be cut off. Fourth, as we have said, Noah's ark was a refuge for divine judgment. So also is Jesus a refuge from the wrath to come for all who would simply believe on his name. There's a wrath that's coming that people are not aware of. And if they are told, they act like they never heard it. They turn in a deaf ear. But there's a wrath that's coming and those who are in Christ are going to be saved from it. Either you believe it or you, or you don't. That's your choice. Now, when I said fifth, Noah and his family are invited into the ark, which is in Genesis chapter 7 verse 1. In the same way, Jesus's invitation in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 says this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened or either heavy laden, depending on which version you have, and I will give you rest. Now, sixth, the ark is a place of absolute security. So, too, we who are in Christ are eternally secured. Now, finally, God is faithful to deliver all who had entered the ark back to the earth. Our Lord is also faithful and says to his father, I have not lost one of those you gave me. That's in John chapter 18, verse 9. Now, other symbols abound as well. The ark has only one door. So also there is only one way to get to God and that's through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and I cannot say that enough. There's only one door to get to God. There is no back door. Jesus said whoever came before me were thieves. Uh-huh. He that's what he said and he said the thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy, but I have come or either I am come that you may have life and have life more abundantly. Jesus also says in one of my favorite scriptures is John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Now, how can you misunderstand that? You can't even dissect that. You can't misunderstand it. It doesn't matter which version of the Bible you have. Either you just going to skip over it like Oprah Winfrey and her demonic friend, Iyana Van Zandt, uh, said on national television that there are many ways to get to God and then quoted uh, a few passages of scripture just before you get to John 14, 6 to support what they were saying. They were misunderstanding that. And I said, why are you skipping John 14, 6? I lost respect then. Because let me tell you, if you want to be in competition, I'm here to tell you I'm choosing God. I'm choosing Jesus every time. I don't care who the celebrity is. I'm rolling with Jesus. John 14, 6 says, says this again now. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one or your version may have no man comes unto the father except through me or except by me. Now, you cannot get to God through a back door. You have to go through Jesus. He is the door. He is the only door that can lead you to the Father. The Father is God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Okay. Now, biblical evidence exists that would place the, the, the grounding of the ark Ararat on the same day of the Hebrew calendar that Jesus rose from the tomb. Do you guys hear that? Do y'all hear that? I say, said it before, and I'm going to say it again. Biblical evidence exists that would place the grounding of the ark on Ararat on the same day of the Hebrew calendar that Jesus rose from the grave. Now, the word of God is rich and true and beyond the ability of the human mind to fully comprehend, much less write without guidance from heaven. Now, God is its ultimate author the ultimate author of the Holy Bible. Now, as clearly evidenced by, by many convincing proofs. Now, if you want to read more about that, I just didn't include this in the lesson, but you can re, uh, read more about it in Acts chapter one, beginning at verse three. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about Jesus being our high priest. And then uh, we're going to stop right there and continue uh, episode three next week. Okay. We're still in Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter 14, and I'm going to read verses 18 through 20, okay? Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram. And Abraham's name was Abram before it was uh, changed to Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, following Abraham's rescue of his nephew Lot and his defeat of the four kings, a strange man named Melchizedek walks onto the stage. He appeared on the scene from out of nowhere. Okay. Now, we are told that he was both a king and a priest. He brings bread and wine, you know, elements we use in the Lord's Supper. He blesses Abram and calls upon God in doing so. Now, as mentioned in the New Testament, we can say three central offices uh, are ascribed to the Lord Jesus. He was the final prophet of God. He was priest and he was also king, king of kings and Lord of lords. Now, prophets represent God to the people. Okay, 
Priests mediate the people to God and kings rule over the people providing for their needs, or at least they are supposed to. Now, in holding two of these offices, Melchizedek is the only character in the Old Testament other than Moses to hold more than one office. One other detail about Melchizedek, his name in the ancient languages means king of righteousness. Mm -hmm. We also see that he is king of Salem. Salem means peace. He is both king of righteousness and king of peace. Now, Melchizedek is only to be mentioned again in the Old Testament in Psalms uh, 110. Now, what are we to make of him? Hmm? What are we to make of Melchizedek? Now, the writer of Hebrews has the answer. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, it says this about Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Without beginning of days or end of life, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, there's this age-old argument about that Melchizedek back in the Abraham days may have been Jesus. Now, the Bible doesn't necessarily say so, but I believe so. Now, the writer to the Hebrews was explaining to the Hebrews um, about the priesthood of Jesus having no end to it and having no beginning. And since the Hebrews knew the Old Testament scriptures, he was comparing Melchizedek to Jesus, meaning having no ending to the priesthood. So let me read that again, um, verses one through three. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Without beginning of days or end of life, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now notice first that the writer to the Hebrews adds more information, specifically that Melchizedek is without beginning of days or end of life. Now, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, he goes on to note that the tithe, meaning 10%, that Abram paid shows that the patriarch is subordinate to Melchizedek. Because Abram received the blessing, his subordination is affirmed. But let me make this clear. When Abraham paid a, a, a tenth to Melchizedek, it was not a tenth of his money, his wealth. It was a tenth of the spoils. The spoils were things and items and property that he collected from the war. Like, let's say you kill a soldier and the soldier have a watch on, they take that. They take the soldier's shield or sword. You know, if, if the soldier had a bag of food, he took that. That's what they all took. And that's what he gave Melchizedek a tenth of, okay? Now, further, the priesthood to be established by God through the tribe of Levi is also subordinate to Melchizedek. Okay, the Levitical priesthood headed by Moses's brother Aaron, and I talked about that earlier, is even subordinate to its ancestor Abraham. The writer says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11 through 16, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek. Now we're talking about Jesus coming in the order of Melchizedek. Not in the order of Aaron, because Jesus is not a part of the Levitical priesthood, okay? Neither was Melchizedek. He, Jesus, 
of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, not Levi, but Judah. Okay. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation, meaning a law, not a, a priest un, uh, under a law, not today as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of, of an indestructible life. For it is declared in Psalms 110.4, okay? You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. King David knew about Jesus before Jesus was even born. He, he said this in Psalms 110.4, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now the writer to the Hebrews goes on to speak of this new high priest. He is unlike the sinful priests of Levi who need to offer sacrifices for their own sins and who all die. Now the high priest Jesus is sinless and he lives forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now Jesus is both king of righteousness and king of peace. Now as our great high priest, he lives forever to intercede for us as our great high priest. He also gave for us his body and blood, which we commemorate in the Lord's Supper with bread and wine. And as Micah in chapter five, verse two acknowledges, he acknowledges this. His origins are from of old, talking about Jesus, from ancient times. Now he is without beginning as the pre-existing creator of all. Jesus is our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, saints, I am going to stop right here. I hope that this message blessed you because we are searching the scriptures to find the Lord Jesus Christ in them. Because in them, you think you have eternal life, but they speak of Jesus. They lead you to Jesus so that you may have life. So if there is anyone under the sound of my voice who hasn't accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, who don't hold the testimony of Jesus, now is the time. Because tomorrow is not promised to you, my brothers and sisters. You may leave here tonight. And I can assure you, you cannot come back to get it right. You have to call on the Lord while he may be found. Because there will come a time Jesus will not be available for you to call upon. And that will be a time that is too late for you. So I tell you this. You don't have to stop sinning right now to accept Christ because I am here to tell you the word of God says that yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You can only get to God through one door. You can only get to God through his son. You can only have forgiveness of sins through the blood that Jesus shed on Calvary's cross. And if you want to spend eternity with God, and his son Jesus, you have to accept him as Lord and Savior. So call your family, call your friends, come to the altar right now. Repeat after me. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, in your word, you say that if I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that you raised him from the dead, that I will be saved. Lord, I confess that Jesus in your, is your son. And if I confess that he is your son, that means he is God in the flesh. He is Lord. And I believe that he is seated at your right hand, Father God. I am saved.
Hallelujah. If you said that simple prayer and you mean it, you don't ever have to say that prayer again. Just believe who Jesus is. Hold that testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and you have just been given eternal life. Find a faith-based teaching church. I advise you to get baptized. You are not saved through water baptism. It's just that we want to follow Christ in water baptism to represent his death, burial, and resurrection and start your new life, saints. So, until next time, peace out. enlightened by this message. If you have any questions or comments about this particular episode, please send your questions or comments to talkingbibletruth.cd at gmail.com or you can send me a direct message through my podcast by clicking on the message button located on the homepage of all my podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Google Podcasts, and Radio Public to submit your remarks. I should note that you must be a follower of my show to submit a voice message. So don't forget to click the follow button. You can also support my podcast financially by accessing the homepage on my podcast and clicking on the support this podcast button. Whatever you choose to donate will be greatly appreciated and used to help further the gospel. I am praying for God to give you a return on your donation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. English Standard Version. Please sow your seed in good ground with a cheerful heart, because God loves a cheerful giver. Now until next time, my sisters and brothers, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We walk by faith, not by sight. I am your host and teacher, Dr. Kamala D. Rightly dividing the word of truth in peace and love. And remember, continue to walk with Jesus. I thank you for tuning in and I hope to see you next time. <laughs>